You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley, which is part one of the sermon series, James. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Amen. 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 Uh, If you would, turn to the book of James. There were two hunters out in the woods when one of them collapsed. He wasn't breathing. So uh, the other guy, his friend, whips out his cell phone and he calls 911. And he's screaming into the phone, I think my friend has passed. And he yells, what can I do? And the operator says, listen, first and foremost, just calm down. Let's make sure that he's actually passed away. There's silence. And then all of a sudden, there's this big bang. Guy picks up his phone and he says, okay, now what? (laughs) You know what? First service did the exact same thing. And let me just be vulnerable. A guy come up to me after service. He goes, hey, you know, it's a funny joke, but it was in your delivery. You missed the, you missed the delivery. And I don't think I missed the delivery first service either, but um, <laughs> awkward. Why did I tell you that? Well, really, there's a little bit of a point of application. Me, I thought the joke was really funny. And uh, first and foremost, But we're going to be studying in the book of James. I talked to Pastor Dustin a couple of months ago. And I said, where do you want to, what do you want to do this summer? I want you to take a little, uh, I want you to take a section to be able to teach. He said, man, I want to do the book of James. The book of James is very unique in its, uh, it's kind of a unique book in its structure and its setting. It's, I mean, it's no holds barred. If you're going to read it and go through it, you've got to fasten your seatbelt because it's going to be in your grill. There's not a lot of flowery, boy, I hope you like this. This is good stuff. It's kind of like get right or get left. You know, it's very literal. It's very practical. It's like when the operator said, well, find out, make sure that that person has passed. He did. It's kind of how James comes across. And then as you're reading it, you want to be constantly asking, okay, now what? Okay, now what? God, what what do you have from me as I've read this? That's what James is doing. He's writing this book and he's writing to, it's, it's unique in that it's really structured and set up for the Jewish churches in and around Jerusalem in about 45 AD, probably 12 to 15 years after Jesus had died, crucified and resurrected. They believed that this is probably the first book that was written in the New Testament. Now, it's also unique in its writing because James, the writer, was part of the Jerusalem church leadership along with Peter and John. And, and, and they tended to be just a little bit more strict in their teaching and how we're, and how we're supposed to behave. Whereas Paul and Barnabas, they were in the Antioch area. And when they talked to their believers, they really begin to focus a little bit more on the importance of grace. Now, it's important because nothing has changed really in the church in 2,000 years. You have people, uh, a lot of it's based on some belief, a lot of it's based on personality. You have the people over here that, oh, grace, 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 grace. doesn't matter what you do. Do whatever you want. Just Jesus' grace is so good. And it is. But that doesn't mean that we can live any way that we want. You got the people over here then that go truth, truth, truth. Live a certain way, live a certain way. And it's like, you know, they're they're truth, truth, truth. This is what it says. Don't deviate, don't move away from it. And that's kind of how Jerusalem was and then Antioch was more of the grace. But there's a balance and the the teachers, Paul and the disciples and Peter, James and John, they had to learn to come together and you see it taking place in Acts 15. It's kind of like a trampoline where you've got to have, you've got to have consistent pressure all around. You can't be all grace and no truth. Otherwise, you'll be spineless and you'll live any way you want and you'll become a train wreck. But you can't be all truth either because if you're all truth, you will become hard-hearted, judgmental, and you'll look down on everybody because they're not living and believing and doing the same things you are. 
But in this book, James is kind of, he's a little bit more into the truth. One of my favorite theologians is uh, Martin Luther, who was the one who started the Protestant Reformation. And he had grown up in seminary and he was brilliant. But he was always trying to sense and know God. And he just always felt like he was, it just wasn't happening. And he's always doing all these good things to get close to him. And so finally he has this epiphany. He has this revelation as he's reading the book of Romans in chapter 3. And it says in the just, or excuse me, Romans 1. And it says in the just shall live by faith. And he goes, that's it. It's about my faith. I've been working so hard for so long to do and to do to get to God, and it's all about faith. Now, the context of why he, that became so good to him and so true for him is because, well, first of all, he was trying to earn and work his way to God, which never works. And secondly, he was around a lot of people, uh, a sector of the church who really believed that your good deeds and the things that you did would help you get to God and bring you into a relationship with God. So all of a sudden, he has this revelation, this epiphany, and so the pendulum swings from doing good works to, ah, it's just faith, 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 faith. Just believe, and that's all that matters. And that is. But now James comes, as a matter of fact, uh, Martin Luther, he called this epistle an epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He said it focuses too much on doing and not enough on faith. Because see, James is going to come in chapter 2, and he's going to begin to talk about the importance of our faith and our works. It isn't either, it isn't this or that. It isn't faith or works. It's not either or, but it's both and. Now, the James that we're talking about here is uh, he, there's a, there's a number of significant James that are talked about in the Old Testament. But scholars have narrowed this down that this was uh, actually the half-brother of Jesus, He's the younger half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. Uh, obviously, that m- many of us might know that Jesus you know, was conceived immaculately and the immaculate conception uh, by the heavenly father. So nobody else has had that kind of father, the actual father God. And so James, though, had another father. So they're half-brothers. They grew up in the same home. They grew up together. But it's interesting because now Jesus never, he was sinless. He never sinned in his life, even as a child. Imagine growing up with a sibling like that. <laughs> but, but, but Jesus has brothers and sisters. And so they, they begin to be part of his story as all of our families are. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21 and 31 to 32, we see that James and the brothers and the sisters, they're dealing with this unbelief concerning Jesus. In this story, now Jesus has already been thrust into ministry. He's already made declarations that I am God, I am the Messiah, I'm the God in the flesh, and he's healing people and he's speaking forgiveness to people and he's causing an incredible positive movement, but he's also causing a negative uproar with the religious people. Now, on this day in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in a home and he's teaching and he's telling people who he is and what he's going to do. And it's like one of those times, you know, I don't know if it was a holiday or whatever, but the family shows up, the brothers, the sisters, and the mom. They've probably been hearing things about him. Oh, Jesus, you know what he's doing, don't you? (laughs) He's telling everybody he's God. You, you, You know what he's doing, don't you? He's healing people. He's touching people. And so the family's becoming pretty concerned. And they go to this house and they're standing on the outside because they want to wait till he comes out. They want to grab him and they want to take him away. I mean, you go, oh, why would they want to do that to Jesus? You got to understand the the, the story behind and in between the lines of the story. Imagine if you had a brother, half brother, full brother, 
And all of a sudden, you start hearing things. Oh, man, he's really becoming popular. And then you go and you find out and you hear his messages. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the Messiah. I'm healing people. Sins are forgiven. And then you go to his Facebook and you look at it and it goes, God, Messiah. That's going to shake you up a little bit. I mean, at the worst, you're going to say he's a delusional fool. At the best, you're going to go, wow, I always knew he had a good self-esteem, but I didn't know it was, you know, that strong. So this is all taking place. So what they want to do is they want to grab him. They call him out. They want to take him home. They want to hold him up. Uh, I'm thinking they probably want to take him home and get some of those infusers out and, and, you know, some calming oils for him to breathe and to get his thinking straight. You know, you're just Jesus. You're not the Messiah. That's James. That's where James came from. He thought his brother was, well, borderline lunatic, as did his other brothers and sisters. And even it's kind of inferred that maybe the mother was starting to lean that way as well. I I, I don't know. I suppose it's possible that uh, there could be even people here today that would say, you know, I'm here. I've heard a lot about this Jesus, but it just doesn't add up. I mean, to me, it's kind of, I'm still kind of part of that fringe that thinks he's part of the lunatic fringe. And that's all right, because that's where James started. That's all right, because that's where a lot of Jesus' family started. Unbelief. They just didn't believe it. But then you're going to begin to see this progression. And and in Mark chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, the first six verses of Mark 6, we see that his brothers and his mother and his sisters are there, or the sisters aren't, but the brothers are there with him. He's returned to his hometown and everybody's excited and they're going, wow, the, the, the way he teaches, it's amazing. And these things that he's doing, it's amazing. And then Jesus says, because uh, it also says that his family and the people around him were seeing all these things, but they were actually offended at him. And he hears this, he understands this, he knows this. And he kind of looks at him, he goes, here's what I want you to know. And he says, is a prophet not welcome in his own hometown? That's a powerful statement there because he says, I'm a prophet. You know what he's really saying? He's kind of he's saying to this, to this mindset of these Jewish people, he's saying, guess what? Remember Moses? He was a prophet. And Moses was revered among the Jewish people as a prophet. And he's also saying, remember Jeremiah? Remember Isaiah? He's basically saying, I'm, I'm, that, I'm from that ilk Uh, but only greater. That's serious stuff. And it says these people and his brothers were offended by what he was saying. Have you ever tried to teach your parents something? Have you ever tried to set your siblings straight or try and tell them or teach them something? It doesn't go well very often, does it? Well, it's kind of the same thing with Jesus here. He's trying to communicate to his family everything that he is and everything that God has called him to do and to become. And he's literally swimming against the current of their doubt and their denial. Isn't it true that sometimes our family can be the last ones to see what's taking place in our lives? Isn't it true that sometimes our families can see what we can't see what God's doing and we think we're making progress? I received a, a note from a, a, one of my relatives uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, as I read it, I was just blessed because they were, you know, just telling me that I'm just really nice and good and they're proud of me, uh, among other things. And um, here's what I I was thinking, you know what? Uh, This relative is the, um, I got to be careful how I phrase this. This relative is from the day they met me, even before I was a Christ follower, I was 15, before they met me, They have been my greatest supporter, biggest encourager, most believing in me. Don't you want somebody like that? 
But here's the problem with family and, and sometimes even those close to us, they can't engage you. They can't see you for who you are and who you're becoming and who you're going to become and what God's doing in your life uh, because they grew up with you and they knew everything from your past. Maybe some of us here, you're in that place of doubt and denial as well because in Mark Six, that's what they said, that Jesus, he couldn't do any miracles there because they doubted there was unbelief. Maybe that's the same for, maybe you're one of those people today, here today, and you go, I'm telling you, it's just, it's, it's pretty tough. You know, I want to believe, but man, it's, it's, it's kind of, man, my bandwidth of belief just can't take me there. And what, what you're going to see in time is that many people come to this crossroads of seeing Jesus, and there's really a couple of options, C.S. Lewis says, is that he's either a liar based on his claims, he's either a lunatic based on his Messiah complex, or he's the Lord of all because he did what he said he would do. You see, there's really no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can't say you forgive sins. You can't say you're God. You can't say all of the things that he said and be a truth teller. You can't say all of the things that he said and not be considered a lunatic unless you can back them up. Now, if you're here and you struggle with that, I am sure glad that you're here because this whole spiritual thing is a journey and you don't have to believe whatever to be a part of who we are. We're just glad you're here and you're welcome. But I do believe this, like James, there's gonna come a time where you're gonna come to face to face with trying to understand who is Jesus in my life. And he's going to come and he's going to begin to reveal himself to you in different ways. And then you're going to be left to make that decision. Huh? Because it happened to James. It was probably 15 years, 12 to 15 years later after the resurrection that James wrote this book. So when did it change for James? It changed at the resurrection. See, he, James had heard, had heard, Jesus, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I've come in the flesh, I'm going to make a difference in humanity, I'm going to make a difference in this world. That was his message. I come to seek and to save the lost, people who are far from God, because I want to save them from their sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in that day, you know what, in Jesus' day, there were, uh, Messiahs were a dime a dozen. You know, it's like uh, another wacko. And so that's how his family began to respond. But all of a sudden, something changed. When was it? If you, turn, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the, it's the opus of the, of the resurrection as Paul begins to lay it out. And he says, when Jesus resurrected, the first person he went to was Peter. Why? Because Peter's the one that failed him so miserably. And he goes to Peter and he says, here I am. All is forgiven. And then it says he appeared to 500 men. And then it says he appeared to many others. And then in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, it has this little statement, and he appeared to James. He wanted to go see his little brother. He wanted to go say, hey, bro, here I am. How's this for doubt, belief, and all of that? Voila. And it's from that point on that James says, my Lord, my God. See, that's what Jesus, loved ones, wants to do for every one of us. He will come and then you'll make the decision. I, I don't know where James, was, where James was on his faith continuum, but there was something about the reality of the resurrection and seeing Jesus after that that totally changed his life, which it really did. It started the Christian movement henceforth and forevermore, and it's changed a lot of our lives in here. 
So James now, he's become the leader in the church of Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15. And then he writes this book, which many believe was the first book written in the New Testament. So what is his message? Well, I'm going to kind of give you a flyby, and Pastor Dustin is going to pick it up next week. But one of my favorite pastors and writers, uh, he, used to, he said this in one of his books. He said, you know what, I didn't even preach through the book of James. I just read it. He said, it's so strong that if I tried to do it expositionally and teach it, I'd probably turn the people black and blue. It's so straightforward. But we're going to kind of put our chin strap on our seatbelts on, and we're going to go through this. Because James here is writing to a religious people who knew a lot, but they didn't do much. So hence there's this theological tension in this book that is so practical, but the tension is faith and works. Living by faith, but do you have works in your life to validate that faith that brings you to Jesus? And, and see, throughout history, even here today, in the, in the church world, there are people who believe they can simply believe, but they never engage or do anything with their faith. But I want you to hear, loved ones, that maturity in your faith will never come unless there are things that are being worked out because of your faith. It it, it just doesn't happen. Because I see a lot of people like that. Well, you know, man, I just got my faith. Okay. But they're not growing. They're not moving forward. And they're not maturing. Let me read just the introduction to the book of James in James chapter 1. It says, I, James, a slave of God and the master Jesus. Uh, Some of your translations will say, I, James, a bondservant. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you'll begin to find out what a bondservant was. A bondservant was somebody who had been a slave to somebody, and once they were released, their time up of being a slave, they decided they would go back and say, I want to continue to be your slave. You were good to me, I trust you, and, 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 and you were such a great master, I want to continue to be your servant. And so they'd go through this ceremony, and they would take, uh, take that servant, and they would uh, have the first piercings, I guess, back then. They would pierce their ear, and then they would put a little metal dowel in it, or a wooden dowel. And it was signified that wherever you saw that person, you know that they were not a servant by conscription or by demand or by force, but they were a servant by choice. And James is saying, it's not my life. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we don't own ourselves. We simply become servants of the Most High God, but we choose to do that because it's the best place to live. And that's what James is making clear here. I am a servant of the master. I know him. I trust him. And then he goes on to say that I'm writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered to the kingdom come. They're scattered to kingdom come. The 12 tribes, again, that's an Old Testament uh, uh, statement and reference to the 12 tribes uh, that God put together and worked through in, uh, in the early Hebrew history. What he's really saying is if you're a Jew out there, this is to you. This letter, when when they would write these letters uh, in the New Testament, what would happen? They'd write them, and then they would send them around to the local churches, and they would read them to the congregations. And that's exactly what's happening here. So he's writing this letter, and it's going to begin to be circulated throughout the churches. And so he says, this is what I want you to know. I I, I find this interesting. If, if, If you were James, wouldn't you kind of leverage the name? Dudes, I'm James. I was the, I was, I was the Messiah's half-brother. Kind of like, I'm a big dog, you know? But no, he says, you know what? I'm nothing. I am simply a servant by choice. And that's why I write. And then he says these things. He says, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges and temptations come at you from all sides. Does anybody consider, consider that a sheer gift 
when you're tempted to do this, when you are attacked over here with a trial and there's something negative or pressure going on over here, uh, do you ever just go, yippee? <laughs> well, that's what, that's what James is saying. Yippee. He said, don't try and get out of anything prematurely. Let us, uh, let us do, let it do its works so you can become, get the word mature, well-developed and not deficient in any way. He says, those things have a purpose for you in God's law, in God's economy. They will strengthen you. They will make you better. They will build your life. So that's kind of his, his message. His focus is going to be on orthopraxy, the ethical and practical way to live. He doesn't spend a lot of time on orthodoxy, which is doctrine and believing. He's basically going to say, cinch up your britches and get to work. Throughout history and today, there are people who believe that they can simply just kind of come and show up and one pastor says it this way, come for the show but never grow. Because here's the thing, loved ones, uh, James is going to be really clear on this. The way you grow, the way you mature is by being engaged. And the greatest expression of God in this world is not only through his church, but into the community for him. I, I suppose we would all agree with this, that one of the major problems of our world and even in the church, is immaturity. Uh, don't we get in all kinds of trouble? Don't we get in all difficult situations because we say immature things? We make immature decisions and we act in immature ways. Uh, God's will for every person is that they grow. Hebrews 6.1 says, let us go on to maturity. And, and in the season ahead... As we're working, even as a church, in this uh, doing and uh, acting versus believing and growing continuum, because it's so easy to swing the pendulum, we want to make sure that we are focused on growing, being with Jesus, not just doing for Jesus. We, we want to grow a depth of maturity in our lives and how we understand and work through the word. And then how we reach into the heart and lives of our community. Because James is saying that's really a, the showcase of your personal and church maturity. Well, what, what is maturity and what isn't it? Well, it isn't age, how long you've lived or how long you've been a Christ follower. Now, God's ideal is that we grow older, but in that process that we also mature. But that's not always the case, isn't it? Don't you know people that have been around forever and they're no mature than they were 10, 15 years ago? Achievement. You know what? You can accomplish a lot, but you can still be immature. How about academics? How many degrees you have? How much education you have? Man, when I went to college, I thought, wow, I'm going to learn a lot. And I did. And I got out of college. I thought I knew a lot. And then after being in the ministry for a few years, wow, I learned a lot, but I don't know hardly anything. Did you understand that? Just because you have education and knowledge and achievement, age, and that doesn't always equate to maturity. So how do you measure your spiritual maturity? Well, you don't do it by other people. Wouldn't it be easy? I mean, I'd love if, you know, if Bob Jones was right here. He's my, you know, my comparison. Yeah, Bob, he's, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot further along than him. I feel pretty good. But see, James is going to challenge us to say, it's not about other people. Yeah, the, the, the standard is going to become God's word, and it's going to be Jesus himself. That's going to be the standard by which we determine our maturity. The word mature in the Greek here is uh, teleos, and it's translated mature, complete. James uses the word mature, complete, uh, five times in this passage, in his passages. 
And so we begin to see, friends, that this is, a, this is like a manual on how to grow, how to become more mature. And what I want to do is I want to give you a, just kind of a little flyby on five chapters here. And uh, some of these, maybe a couple of these will be uh, tackled more in depth. But I want to give you just five signs of maturity here that James gives us. The first one we see in chapter one. It's to be a hearer and a doer. Uh, I think that the verses are on your, your notes there. I, I would encourage you to spend time in these next weeks to, to be reading through uh, these chapters. Take a chapter a week because that's how we're going to basically go through the book. But maturity is someone who hears and they do. And because they hear and they do, they're able to deal with the issues and the troubles, the trials, the temptations, and the tribulations of their life. How do you respond to those things when they come? Because that will determine, help you know how mature you are. Do you grumble? Do you gripe? Do you succumb to them? Do you give up? Do you run away? Because all of those will let you know how strong you are. See, Christianity is a life. And if you're new or you don't know this, Christianity is not just, is not a religion. It's a life. Jesus said that I come, that I could give you life. And what happens, what comes with life? Well, we all know, don't we? Problems, trials, temptations, tribulations, difficult times, wonderful times. But life brings all of those things. So when they come, what's your natural attitude, your natural bent or proclivity toward them? when things don't go right, when you don't get your own way with temptation or trials. James says, do this. We look to the Lord and we allow his word to direct us. And, and hear me, I'm not, when, when I say this, I'm not saying we mail off our brains. Absolutely not. God's given us good brains and processes and the ability to think. But here's the difference. A lot of people just say, I got this, God. And there's really no, no, no even a consideration for what God might want to do in and through or teach you through some of these situations. And you're, where you'll get your biggest difficulty is when you say, hey, God, I got this. Man, I've been around for a few decades, so I'll take care of this. And when God says you face a tribulation, a trial, a temptation, whatever it is, he says, look to God. Say, God, what, what, what do you want? Because ultimately, you're going to be the one that's going to help me get through. And then when he begins to speak to you, you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I was counseling with somebody recently, and it was, it's one of those hard sessions where I'm kind of like James in these sessions where you look at him, and you got to speak some hard truth. So I'm speaking, and and, and I know as a counselor, this isn't going to, this probably isn't going to end well. Because, you know, a lot of people kind of want to be coddled and, you know, you know, I'm all right, you're all right, it's going to be all right. But the sad thing is, is it's not going to be all right if you don't face the issues. So I'm giving them all of this and I go, well, you know, everybody hugs on the way out and then probably cuss you on the way out, out. But we left, and I turned to my wife, who was a part of it. I said, well, I hope that works out. I hope they hear the spirit of what God wants to speak to them. So I got an email a few days later that just said, thank you. I really didn't like when you said this. Kind of made me upset, but thank you. I needed to hear it. And see, loved ones, that's the way it is. That's what James is saying. Trust God, especially when you don't like it. Did you say, okay, what now, Lord? I'm going to do it. Be a hearer, not a doer. He also talks about in James chapter 2, faith and works. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 8, he says, you really keep the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing right. A mature person is seen, not only that they do what God says, and, but they also, they, 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 their, their faith is not just a faith, but their faith is supported by the way they are sensitive and treat people around them. You know what? Don't ever forget this, loved ones. People matter most to God. 
Nothing else matters to God, not our worship, not our preaching. It's what, it's people. All of those are important. But see, when he talks about the church, he talks about people. Who are the people in the church? This building means nothing. The only reason this building is special is when you and I are in it because we're the church. And he says, what I want you to know is your, 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 your faith has to have works that begin to show you are sensitive and you love people. But when people are immature, especially in our early years, what do we do? I mean, think about your kids. What do they do? I want this. I don't want that. I want to go here. I don't want to eat that. Wah, 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 wah. You know what those kids are? They are not even the least bit interested in anybody else. Right? It's all about me. And James is going to challenge him. He says, it's not all about you. It's what Jesus wants to do and work through you and to show your love for the people around you because that's what faith does. And he gets really specific in the first chapter, in the first verses of chapter two. He says, I don't want you to show favoritism. Don't look down on people. Don't judge by appearance. Don't insult people. Don't exploit people. He basically says the second test of your maturity is going to be how do you treat people? Are you kind? Are you gracious? Are you open to them? Are you open for business with them? Or do you have a tendency to say, God, get me out of here. I don't want to, I don't want to help anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be a part of the greatest expression of your life on earth, the church. I just, I want to be me, myself, and I. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I get it. But that's not how Jesus calls us to live. Matthew 25, remember Jesus? He's telling this at the end of his life. He says, he's talking about the judgment day and what, uh, the, how people will stand before him, what they're going to say. He says this, they'll say, I was hungry and, and uh, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. And the people will say, well, Lord, huh. When, when did we do that? When were you sick and did we visit you? When were you in prison and when were you thirsty and when did we give you drink? And Jesus says, as much as you have done this unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Let me just drive you really crazy. Do, do you know that when you give a person, you know, money that's begging for it, I'm not saying you need to do it. You need to know, but even if you do it, when you do that, you're giving it to Jesus. Well, they're going to use it for drugs. Okay. I'm not saying do it. But, but, but sometimes we get really righteous about that. And I don't want to get into the philosophical and, you know, the debates of good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just, is an example, okay? Everyone's got to do what they need to do, what God tells them to do. Because whenever I say I do that, you all get on my case and say, don't you know? And I go, yeah, I'm learning. You know, I'm real smart. And, uh, but I'm learning. But here's the deal. Every time I've done that, every time you do it, every time you help somebody in Jesus' name, every time you reach out to somebody that needs something, every time you speak a word of encouragement, this is what it is. You're doing that unto Jesus. And James says, you know what? That's what our faith should look like. It should have some works that speak of Jesus. He says, hold your tongue in chapter 3. James chapter three, verse two, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he does, he is a perfect person, able to keep his whole body in check. Who in this room can keep your tongue perfectly? Raise your hand, stand up, and we will applaud you. <laughs> hey, what's the first thing? I went to the doctor about a month ago. What's the first thing that he does? For me, because of a lot of different reasons, he looks at my mouth, puts that little thing in there, and he pushes down my tongue. My gag reflex kicks in. Is this bothering you? Yes. But why does he do that? Because he can tell a lot about my health. He can tell a lot about your health because of your tongue and your mouth. And you know what? God does the same thing spiritually. He says self-control is going to come ultimately because of your tongue control. How, don't, don't we get ourselves into trouble because of the things that we, 
we think and then we speak. Have you ever seen people who just, they, they, they really, you just go, were they thinking when they said that? Were they thinking when they went on Facebook? Were they thinking when they tweeted that? And then there's those people, do you know these people? They say something and you try and help them and get them out of it and they say something else and you go, dude, woman, settle down, stop, go full flaps because that ain't going good and they just keep going. (laughs) That's kind of what our tongue, that's what James is saying. You know, you really want to be careful with your tongue. And he gives these three illustrations. He says, our our tongue is kind of like this fire and it can be warm and it can barbecue for you and do all these wonderful things. Or like we've seen in the last couple of years, it can cause massive destruction. He says, your tongue, it's it's like putting a bit in in, in a horse's mouth and it can begin to control its direction with just a little, a little tug here. And then he says, you know, it's also, it's kind of like a little rudder on a boat. I mean, this big, massive boat is being controlled by this little rudder and it determines the direction. You know what he's saying? He's using these three illustrations to say, your tongue is such a small little thing, but it controls big portions of your life. And he says, if you want to test the maturity of your life, Check your words. How are you talking? How are you talking to people? Because that's ultimately going to begin to direct your life. The tire, I mean, the the tire, the tongue that can warm you can destroy you. The tongue that can take you to a good place can take you to a really evil place. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4? He says, speak the truth in love. And what he's really saying there's, you know, speak the truth with the right attitude, the right timing, the right place, the right location for the right reasons and the right motives. Man, James is so practical. And he says, you know what? Ultimately, if you don't have this attitude like Christ, you're going to miss it. He says, he says in verse, in chapter four, uh, um, you can either be a friend of God or the friend of the world. The, 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 another mark of maturity is what's more important to you, to be a friend of God or to be a friend of the world? There's so much conflict all around. And part of that is, is there's really two reasons that he talks about. He says the first reason there's so much conflict is because of selfishness. He says you ask and you pray for this and that and the other, and you're asking for yourself. You're selfish. I don't want to crowd you too much, but just think about your prayers in the last couple of weeks. What's the focus been on? Has it been on you and your stuff, or has it been on others and other things? Do you find yourself praying for those people who are far from God? Do you find yourself praying for the church? Do you find yourself praying for whoever, where around you? Or is it all about, God, get me this. God, I want that. God, I need this. God, get me out of this mess. He says, that's the reason there's so much conflict and difficulty because your prayers, you're you're, you're selfish. And then he says, the second one is you're prideful. Not Creeksiders, I'm not talking to you guys. But he's saying that, that there's a group of people, they have this pride. James says this, humble yourselves. Because when you humble yourselves before God, he will rise you, raise you up. Submit to God and draw near to God. And when we move this way, loved ones, we're going to have greater influence on the world because you're a better friend of God, because you're worshiping God. That's what he's talking about there. When you humble yourself and you look up to God, it begins to affect every area of your life, not just a Sunday. Here's a question that I'm asking myself again. Wherever I go, am I influencing those situations, those places and people for God, or am I allowing them to influence me? Because ultimately, that's what we want to be able to do, loved ones. We want to live in such a way that whether it's at work, at college, at school, on the job, in our home, are people coming and are they able to influence us or are we influencing them? And James says, I want you to be a friend with God, not a friend of the world. Are you saying that we isolate ourselves or insulate ourselves from the world? Uh, We don't isolate, we insulate. 
Because God just says earlier, I want you to love people. I don't want you to judge them. I don't want to remove you from people because you might be the greatest light that they can ever see. But I want you to influence them. See, that's why Jesus could go with all of these bad people, tax collectors, sinners, drunkards, gluttonous people, prostitutes, all of the baddies of the day. And he began to speak to them, change them and bless them and change the course of their life. The last one, James 5, is persevere. James says this in uh, verses 7 and 11. He says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. As you know, we consider blessed those who persevere. Verse 16, he goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I love that, powerful and effective. God says the mark of a mature person is that he be patient and prayerful. In chapter five, he uses the word patient four times and the word prayerful seven times. This becomes kind of the climax of the whole thing because he begins to talk about, he says the, uh, the, the righteous prayer, or the, the excuse me, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, who's the righteous person? It's anybody that's walking in relationship with Jesus. He's saying when you are in relationship with Jesus, not only are you righteous, but you can begin to make a difference through your prayers and your waiting patiently for what God wants to do in you, through you, and around you. And he uses this example, illustration of a farmer. And he says, remember a farmer, what do they do? They work the ground, they till the ground, they prepare the ground, then they throw the seed in the ground, fix the ground some more, and then they water. And he says, you know what? That, that, that farmer might not see any seedlings or anything come forth for some weeks or months. He says, that's what you want to do. Don't be like the little child that says, I want, I want, I want, I want it now, I want it now. Are we there yet? Because God might be using these times to say, I want to grow you up. I want to mature you. I want to give you patience for where I want to take you. And we begin to pray, and our first thought is, I haven't got an answer in two minutes, two days, two weeks. And so what do we do? We go, oh, it must be no. No. It might be not yet. I want to work some things in you. Don't you do that with your kids? Oh, I'd love to give this to them now, but they need to learn some patience. They need to understand that they're not going to get everything they want. Now, God may not think totally that way, but there's a sense of God says, I want to do something in you and through you. Just wait on me. Look to me. Trust in me. So James has got some pretty practical things to say to us. And I want to encourage you, loved ones, spend some time now just kind of going through this book on your own and say, Lord, speak to me. What now? Help me to face my temptations and trials seeking you. Help me to love the people around me. Help me to speak with grace and truth. Help me to worship you and draw near to you. Help me to trust you. Would you stand, please? There's a story about James that he was called camel knees. Have you ever seen a camel? The camel, when it, it would bend down uh, and it would bend both of its legs underneath and so it would uh, rest on its knees, a lot, a lot of the weight would be on its knees and then it would get up and there would be some friction. Well, they do this throughout the life of the camel and pretty soon they have these large calluses on it. And the reason they called James camel knees is because he was known to be a man who prayed for hours, hours, seeking God. I'm not saying spend hours and hours seeking God, but I think James gives us an incredible insight that when we do that, he's going to really teach us how to trust him and how to work out the works of our lives that are tied and tethered to our faith. And, and, and so I want us to pray this morning to have that kind of faith that says, Lord, because of that, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna begin to see the people around me in a different way. I'm gonna begin to see my trials and temptations, problems from your perspective 
and look to you for your agenda. Would you just take a moment and say, where, where would today speak to you? Maybe you've never made a commitment to Christ. You've doubted and denied and like James, but maybe there's this time where you said, you know, I got to cross that line. Maybe that would be you today. As you're standing there, just say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I make that decision today. Maybe there's others of you that have hurt somebody with your tongue and you need to go speak to them. Maybe someone's hurt you with their tongue and you just need to forgive them. Don't, don't go to them. Just say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you. Maybe you're in the midst of something really difficult and you want to bail. James would say, persevere. Stick by the stuff. Let God work. Trust him. So we just take a moment and think about where, where you are in that today. Father, I'm talking to a church of people that does a lot. Their faith is seen in so many different ways by the things that they do. And yet, Lord, I never want our doing to eclipse our being. I never want our doing to eclipse our drawing near to you. And there's probably some here that really aren't doing anything. And you might graciously and lovingly be speaking to them today to kind of time to step out. Lord, as our church is kind of going and re-envisioning some things for our future, help us to be people that go out into this world, not to preach at, not to look down upon, but Lord, to graciously love and speak into the lives of those around us. The ones that are fun, the ones that are difficult, the ones that we will do anything to avoid. Give us opportunity, Lord, to trust you and to reach out. Thank you, Jesus, that you reached out to us. That your faith wasn't just coming, saying, yeah, I'm God and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But then you would have never gone to the cross to die for our sins. So thank you, Lord, that your works were manifest on our behalf and teach us, God, to do that too. Thank you, Lord, for this precious flock. I speak life and grace and health and goodness over them in your name. Let them go forth this week and be mindful of living their faith out. And I thank you for them. Be with uh, all of those that are on vacation, those that will be going. Bless and watch over them. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen.